710 ESPN presents The Experience, the Experience. with Laferne Cusack, where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of The Experience, Laferne Cusack. Laferne Cusack. Jennifer Musselman is a clinical psychotherapist and leadership coach, affectionately known as the CEO therapist by her clients. Jennifer's approach is unique because she focuses on working on the whole person, both personal and professional. I talked to Jennifer about leadership, what it takes when you are performance-driven, a leader in the workplace, on and off the court, high-achieving individuals, and relationships that happen on a team with coaches and players, and even family. We dive into what happens when high-performing individuals, such as your boss, is abusive and how we in the workforce can not only heal, but thrive. For more information, please go to jennifermusselman.com. That's M-U-S-S-E-L-M-A-N, jennifermusselman.com. The experience never stops. never stops. On your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laferne Cusack. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are one of the top creative professionals helping not only executives, but people all over the industry. Tell us a little bit about your journey into helping others. Yeah, so I actually worked for Viacom as an executive for many years. And and then I've seen a change happen in, in the system at Viacom at the top level. And I could see... That, that started creating inter, interpersonal conflict amongst department members. And I could see that the leadership wasn't handling it well, but I didn't have the tools to help them fix it. And nor was I even in an authority position to be able to fix that. But I could see that it was crumbling and, and it really did even still in the stock market today, I think. Um, and so I threw myself back into graduate school to get my master's in clinical psychology to really understand um, how people work in, in you know, behavioral science, we call it. Um, and then in that process, because I have a background in business prior to becoming um, a psychotherapist, um, I started going into startups and um, working with startups and seeing the same sort of thing I saw play out when I worked at MTV Networks, Nickelodeon, and play out in some of these startups because they were not being, um, conflict was not being properly held and handled by the leadership. Um, and so that's when I started realizing what plays out in our family systems play out similarly in systems at work or on teams as well. So they, you know, often call me the CEO therapist um, because I can cross over the domains of professional and personal and see how it plays out in the different spaces in life. That is so true. Like a lot of people bring their family issues into the workplace and then treat other employees or, you know, colleagues the, in strange ways. And I'm like, how can you bring this into the workplace? What do you think that's about in regards to the executives? Is it more of a way of they don't have to deal with it because they're thinking of other things? What, what's your experience with that? I want to make sure I understand the question that if they don't have to, if the leaders don't have to deal with it, meaning they don't have to deal with the fact that they're bringing their craft to the to the office. Is that what you mean? That, but ignoring some of the things that may be happening to cause a team or yes, a team to be dysfunctional. Yeah. So a lot of times, what I see is um, leaders will outsource 
people problems to heads of people, like the chief people officer, right? Um, instead of staying in touch and doing the work themselves with what's happening on the various levels of the organization. And that is like telling, a, that's like a parent outsourcing parenting to their child to someone else, right? So now when an organizational leader outsources the responsibility of sort of containing what we would call a holding environment, um, outsources that to someone else, the people in sort of the employee position start questioning, you know, why are they there? They start having conflict um, and they push back because the leader's not involved intimately. And then they start questioning and lose faith in and trust in the leader because the leader's no longer present for them. Um, and if the leader has a more avoidant type of uh, conflict style, um, all the more that employees will start pushing back and start, you know, creating behaviors of like disengagement mm-hmm. um, or even, you know, actual conflict happening in the workplace. A lot of leaders do not know how to hold space for people to have healthy discourse. They wanted to solve the problem. And we need people to be able to have discourse and have leaders who can hold that environment for the discourse because that's where innovation happens and connection happens when we can come together and be able to have this conversation in a way that may be passionate, may be heated, but we have someone who can hold that space for us and allows us to share. That is where creativity, innovation, and connection is born. And a lot of people, leaders, just are not trained in doing that Mm -hmm. and or they then just want to make the problem go away. That's like a parent who just doesn't want to hear it from their kid and they just say, you deal with it to their other parent. Right. Some people come into an organization and they're labeled as, you know, a a tough boss or a a genius, you know, salesperson or, you know, you have coaches that are acting on like an elite level. So how how as a person going into this specific situation, how can they, I guess, change their thought process into speaking up for themselves, but also maintaining their role wherever they may be? So that's a really good question and a very difficult question to answer because it's, it's the, there's no one answer. But the most important uh, solution to that is no one is going to be able to have that kind of healthy conflict and stand up for themselves and say what's really going on for them if they don't trust that the leadership can allow it and tolerate it and manage it. If anybody thinks they're going to potentially lose their positionality, you know, and financial stability, they're not going to in, in, indulge in the healthy discourse because they don't feel safe that they're, it's not going to, uh, they're not going to be reprimanded. Mm-hmm. So, they and frankly, in some positions, I tell people you just need to leave <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it's it's not going to get better. You can and the only way to to you know work within a system, you know, a sports team or a, a family or a, a um, an organization is to ha- to to use the influence you have to affect change, but influence cannot be about necessarily about mandate if you're not in a position to actually make the change. So sometimes in some organizations, you'll see some of the employees know more about where to go with the company than the leader does, but they're not in the position to shift that or change that, much like I described what, what I what I experienced. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, maybe you need to leave then because if you're going to be spinning your wheels trying to, you know, make change with people who aren't willing to hear it, but you're not in the position to make the change, then you might need to leave or accept that I can only shift perceptions and behaviors to a certain degree and have to accept that it's, I can't create the change or make the impact that I know I'd really like to have on the company. And if you can sort of like let go and lean back a little bit like that, then that's going to help you continue to stay in the organization, have an impact, but it won't be probably at the same level um, as it would be if, if you were in the position of authority. The only other way to do this is to, to truly get buy-in from other team members mm-hmm. and create a space where collectively there's a collective consciousness about what needs to change. And that can, you know, then you can push against the leader as a collective conscious movement, if you will, that then allows for people to say, oh, wow, that's a force. I have to pay attention to that. Yes. But it's really hard for people to come together like that because you often have one or two people who have that courage and that strength and who have that determination and frankly, sometimes less to lose mm-hmm. because maybe they, you know, have financial wealth or, you know, they have, you know, stability in, in another way. Not everybody comes to a team the same way. Right. Not everyone has that same level of like safety net that maybe the leaders of that might. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about Scott Rudin and, and uh, you know, you hear the discourse out there saying, well, people, th- those people should have left. You know, the things that were said in that article, I was like, oh, my goodness, he physically abused, you know, the mm-hmm. assistants. He physically abused people. So that's really where whether it's a company or, you know, an owner of a, of a team or whoever it is to sort of step in and take a, and, and take accountability and take take on the leadership role when they've sort of let a leader get out of control, right? right? Yeah. And, and that's what we don't see enough of is, you know, people sort of, you know, people get into these positions of authority, whether it's a you know, coach or, or even a star player mm-hmm. or uh, the leader of a company, and they just sort of get stamped as the golden child um, and or like untouchable. And then that's where the problem begins. Yeah. And the, the, the reason that really begins is because now there, you know, we do sometimes need other people to hold us accountable, especially when we don't have personal accountability. Right. And that's really where I see the difference of really good leaders is where they are living in their integrity, leaders of a team, leaders of a family, leaders of an organization, where they have personal accountability, where they have values that they live and breathe by. And it shows in how they show up in their everyday life, whether it's, how they show up with their teams or their families um, or their companies. And when we have people that are left to run amok and they start believing their own BS, right. <laughs> um, th- that, that's where we start getting, getting into trouble. And so that's where I really say it becomes the responsibility of the next level up, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, whether it's the board of directors or the owners of a team um, to, hold these leaders accountable and by stepping into that role of accountability then you start bringing the rest of the the employees or the teammates along because now they're saying someone's in charge someone's taking control and that they can trust that it's going to turn a corner for the better i remember you know coming into the industry at an early age and 
you know, you're not aware of some of the things that may be happening. And then then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, is this really how the industry is? Because you have no other mm-hmm. example of how it's supposed to be. You're 100 percent right. I mean, you start adapting to the culture that you're in. That is that's called survival and trauma bonding happens because you learn like this is the way that it is. So you learn to act out of a place of survival when you enter a situation like that. So to your point, especially if you're entering at an early age, you have no other experience. You assume this is the way the industry is. And so you learn to you adapt to whatever the rules of survival are in that space. So it's easy for people on the outside to say they should have left. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, yes, of course. But also a lot of my, my doctoral research has been on, so this comes from sort of early childhood. Sometimes people do not have healthy, secure attachments with their parents. Right. People who have insecure attachments with their parents, the research shows will stay in a, an unhealthy, toxic environment longer than someone who had a healthy, secure attachment to their parent. Reason being is because a person with a healthy, secure attachment to their parent has learned that there is a network that will support them and that they will be okay. So it bolsters their sense of self and co- self-esteem and confidence to say, no, I'm not taking this, and they can walk away. People with insecure attachment styles from childhood stay in these situations longer Predominantly, the um, the one who has the more um, uh, um, insecure attachment style of anxiousness will stay the longest because there's they are fearful that they won't get another job someplace that there won't be another um, they, they won't be good enough for someplace else because they buy into the BS of the culture of the company that says we're the best that there is and you want to work here which means you work here take these take the toxic situation and including probably often the craft pay that comes along with the fact that you're working for one of the most important people in the world. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> so we buy into that BS and we stay. Right. It, it becomes an attachment to our self-identity and our self-worth. Mm-hmm. Unless you have the strength and courage to, to, you know, but it's not just strength and courage. As I said before, you might also have to pay for your brand new baby. Mm-hmm. Right. And be the sole provider of your family. There right. are all these other environmental things you have to take a look at. So it's not fair to say everyone should have handled it this way. It took the collective consciousness of people pushing against it and coming out and probably the strength of one person to start that. Right. Yes. Now people are jumping on board and saying, me too. Yes. But what's also interesting with what you're saying, Jennifer, is that like how I was raised and, you know, over this past year, a lot of people of, of color come have come out to talk about their experiences in the workplace. And it mm. brought me to think of how I was raised and how a, a lot of the, the people of color online talking about how they were raised as well as don't you lose that job. That's a good job. Don't you get rid of that job. That's right. <laughs> you better stay That's there. That's a great point. Yeah. That is such a great point. That's generational, right? Like the generations up till today, you know, really were like, that's a really good job. You just adapt. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find another job like that with benefits like that. You're lucky. 
right? So mm-hmm. that is such a great point. So now that's embedded into your 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 belief system. Yes. And that's where you start also thinking, I'm lucky I may not find another job someplace else like this. And so I am gonna adapt and learn. Um, and I will say that's one of the kind of greatest gifts of sort of like the entrepreneurial kind of movements and mm-hmm. what I've seen and um and is people are starting to say, No, I'm gonna work here for a few years and I'm gonna bail. It's no longer like the company's gonna take care of you. That's doesn't happen anymore right. you, you know it's infrequent it's infrequent so um i can't say names but there are some very well high known brands um and i work with some of the top executives with some of them and um, they are looking at that um every quarter going well i survived another quarter which means i made another million dollars let's see if i can survive another they're not there because they believe in the purpose they're there because because they believe in the purpose, but it's what's keeping them there is like next quarter investment because the way the culture is so toxic that they're literally looking at it like, I just want to make it until I make it to the, you know, full investment and then I'm out of here. That's not good leadership. Right. And that's also what you were talking about of you place your identity on the job. That's why like a lot of a lot of athletes that come out of um, being professional or out of college, they have a higher rate of suicidal tendencies because yeah. they identify that's who they are. They're, you know, a football player, a basketball, basketball player, and they don't have it anymore. So their identity is lost. Can you talk about that, Jennifer? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. It is because their sole sense of self and self-esteem is placed on their, their, on their external um, motivation of achievement, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how, they've, that's how they've seen themselves, and that's what they've been validated for, is this external achievement. And so finding more of that intrinsic motivation while you're in sports, you know, playing professionally, is so important so that you now recognize that, I'm valuable because of who I am, not mm-hmm. because of what I do, mm-hmm. right? And that has to be cultivated and really is an area that needs to be um, really head by some of the professional sports teams to start cultivating that early on. And I really think that that is something that the organization as a professional world needs to take on and tackle on behalf of sports players because they're not going to know to do that for themselves. Yes. Yes. We need an organization that does it with them and teaches them and guides them to do that. Um, because then you're just sort of left. You're not, they're entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're sports players. They're just sort of left to founder and figure it out for themselves. That's like, you know, we got to take care of you from the get-go, ground up, and start teaching you the, the, not just the values, but like, okay, what else should we be cultivating so that by the time you leave here, you recognize your internal worth, your value, as being someone who is, um, you know, as being what's holding you and rooting you, not that your value is attached to your next accomplishment. Right. Absolutely. With what you do, are you able to help those people find find that way of uh, yeah. knowing exactly who they are without that yeah. outside influence? I, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it because people never want to think that they have low self-esteem. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people who don't look like they have low self-esteem do. But it's helping them to develop a more solid sense of self and self-esteem based on having a more balanced perspective of 
who they are and what they do and how they show up in life. Mm -hmm. That includes like not making just their sport, their sole purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Yes, it can be a primary one, but having stronger relationships and connections, those kinds of um, teachings are going to be what helps them when they leave professional sports. So now they've got a support system to lean on. Yes. That actually talks about these things with each other as opposed to just, you know, going out and playing golf together. No one's talking about some of their struggles. Mm -hmm. That's where people develop a sense of loneliness and start feeling isolated because no one's like seeing them and what they're experiencing and what they're going through. So helping them to bolster their sense of self in other areas prior to leaving is really important. And starting that process of like, what am I going to do next? Just like in a company, you have a succession plan. You need to be thinking about what that's going to look like in, a, in, in sports as you start thinking about leaving, right? How am I going to pivot and, and, and pivot out and start um, accomplishing something that is of interest to me, building something that's of interest to me. But that's important, but not even nearly as important as maintaining and building strong connections and relationships to counterbalance that need to just always achieve. Yes, uh, that brought up a, a, a an experience I had. So as we're talking about like the career and you know you're rising up in, within a company uh, and first coming in and not knowing how to navigate the culture of that company, I've done a lot of work with myself to say not put blame on anyone, but okay, well what can I learn out of this? And so with each company I've been with, I've I've taken that with me. So I made it to this one company um, a while back, and immediately I saw what was happening in regards to, like, you have a boss and a young girl who just got into the industry and doesn't know what the experience mm -hmm. is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so the mm -hmm. boss was pitting pitting us against each other and I saw it I just mm. took the young girl aside and I was like hey you know I know you're you you know maybe scared I'm scared too but can we kind of mm. work together you know because this is a hard situation I told her I was like this is not normal that what the mm. boss is doing mm -hmm. it's not normal and you mm. have so many skills and talents that are very marketable but she didn't believe it in herself because the the boss is saying, well, you don't have any emotional intelligence. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that you did that and you pulled her aside and you, you, you know, sort of created a buy-in to um, having her trust. Um, because that sounds like that boss was splitting is what we would call it in my, my world. <clears throat> and that, that gives the boss more leverage and more power, right? So you will find certain personality types, I'll just say that, that will do that in order to continue to bolster them and keep people on their toes to make them kind of camouflage their um, own sense of insecurity about what they're doing as leaders. I think your question was around emotional intelligence and what that exactly is and how we can or do we need to bring it into our lives in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So emotional intelligence is really just being able to know who you are and be able to regulate your emotions. So when you're feeling distressed or upset, right, it's self-management around uh, how you're showing up behaviorally due to the feelings that you have and the thoughts that you have. It's, it's containing that emotion and being able to um, have 
conversation or dialogue so that you can have that conversation, but it not get out of sort of out of sorts Mm -hmm. and become disruptive. But then there's also being able to be aware of other people's emotions and other what's happening and sort of being perceptive to like what that something is not right and being able to create a conversation with them and and being able to um, discuss with them the, um, you know, what the challenges might be that they face and creating a space where they can be open without it being, um, with, you know, where they feel like they can open up to you. Right. Uh, and then there you have to manage relationships in general in the workplace. Like, how do you lead with vision? Um, emotional intelligence is about leading with vision and leading with di- building relatedness in the, in a, in a culture um, with, you know, and creating people and inspiring people to want to be connected and work together. So, so much of emotional intelligence is really about learning about yourself and how you operate, what your triggers are, learning how to cope in a way that's healthy, learning how to not project your crap onto other people, whether <laughs> yes. it's because you're getting a divorce and you're bringing it into the workplace, right? Or if you are doing that, recognizing it and being able to say, hey, man, I'm sorry about that. Like, I screwed up. Right. It's kind of it's like what you talked about. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is not normal. I love that you said that to her, but because she doesn't know any different. And we we start buying into like this is the this is the way that it is. And I just have to accept this and tolerate it if I want to be successful. Yes. So that is, you know, we can't make our leaders be emotionally intelligent, which is why I sometimes say if you see yourself outgrowing a, a leader, you sometimes you can try to influence it. But if you see you're not getting anywhere, you might want to consider leaving. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. And it takes strength to leave. It takes strength to know what yeah. you are, how, wh- how much you can deal with, or if you just need to just make that change and just do it. So, so it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer, so you've been in the industry a long time. So, can you explain how you viewed yourself prior to becoming an executive and then what? you learned that made that put you in that position of being that top executive yeah so when i was um coming up the ranks and to becoming an executive it was really about my productivity i was just i'm a go-getter and i you know the gsd got cracked on right Mm -hmm. and that really worked well for me um and i so i showed i showed uh success and accomplishment and that that was rewarded. And what wasn't rewarded, and this was the self-work I had to do, was I am such a direct person that I didn't realize people needed me to be sort of like be more connected with them. Mm. And that people needed me to be deliver things in a less direct approach at times, right? Um, And (laughs) including to people who were levels above me. Um, Because I didn't have that coaching. I didn't have that teaching. I was sort of paving the way for myself and, and where I was coming from. I grew up in the Midwest. I didn't know anybody who worked in of large entertainment corporations. Yes. Um, and so I kind of had a stumble. And part of that stumbling was I was getting promoted based on my productivity, but um, and but I was also causing waves at an early age in, in my career, you know, in my, in my 20s and my early 30s because some people were afraid to work with me. Um, and now some of those people are some of my best friends, but they, you know, we had to go through 
I had to develop and I had to shift in my emotional intelligence, become more aware of my style of work and how that was impacting other people if I wanted to be successful. And that's what where real leadership is, right? Mm-hmm. That's just like becoming aware of how people experience you as a theme and then being able to be versatile and adapt to what the different what different people need in because everybody has a different style. Um, and my style is more of a driver's style. Like, we need to go here. Let's get it done. Let's make it happen. That works really well with some people. Mm-hmm. But other people who have more of an amiable style are, you know, they want to sit and sort of connect first and build rapport first. And so I literally have to do little things like change an email that, that says, hey, can we make sure to get blah, blah, blah done? I go back and, hey, how is your day? I hope things are going really well. If I know that that is someone's style, I have to accommodate more for their style so that I can get what I need done too. Right. So I rose the ranks because of my accomplishment and my productivity. But what made me a leader was when I started doing self-work and sort of self-reflecting and started recognizing I needed to do some personal development and become the person that people wanted to follow, right, as a leader versus, you know, movement over mandate. I'll just say that movement over mandate. I love that. So, Jennifer, when you you talked about sometimes we may have to pivot and you did that. What was that Mm -hmm. point where you you said, okay, I'm going to go, you know, learn a different field and become this great psychotherapist and strategist and consultant? So it was sort of that pivotal moment where I started seeing the interpersonal conflict and power dynamics play out so badly that it started having an, an impact on my mental health and personal wellness. I was going home and just sh- what I did not realize then because I didn't know what that was what was happening, but it was I was having a, um, I was having serious um, anxiety. Yes, and I and I just would go home and just want to shut down. And I, and because of, you know, I just wanted to make it all go away, but I couldn't just quit because I was not in a financial position to, as a primary breadwinner, I wasn't in a financial position to just quit. Right. So um, that was a pivotal moment when I was like, I need to do something with my life that makes me feel happy and inspired. And I didn't want to just go to another culture like the one I was in, Mm -hmm. which was you know, everybody was fighting, clamoring, making sure it was a survival culture. Yes. And so that's what led me to get my master's in clinical psycho- psychotherapy because I wanted to give back. I had come from a world where people brought their, you know, some kids have leukemia. Everybody brought their potluck to the gym and to, you know, to try to raise money for him. And I started feeling like I needed to be in a profession that helped people in the same way I needed help, but I didn't have that kind of support of what to do or how to navigate a culture of, you know, fear-based and, and, and toxic leadership. I wanted to be able to do that for other people. So that was the pivotal moment that I decided I needed, I need to figure this out and, wow. and move in this direction. Wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Are you able to meet with a person and automatically see how you can shift their thought process into one that is more sustainable for themselves? Yeah, it's it's so interesting because when you've done this long enough, you can just sort of look at a person and how they carry themselves. And you can see as sort of what we would call an automatic negative thought or cognitive distortion. So even just as they're speaking, you can see 
what's happening for them that they're not aware of, right? right? So if someone starts talking, you know, says something like, oh, that was so stupid of me, I'm like, ooh, they're, they're hypercritical of themselves, which often means they're also, not always, but often critical towards other people. And how they speak, right, is, is, a, is a, you can say, ooh, I, I wonder if the other people experience them this way because of just the words that they use. So mm-hmm. you definitely can see... Um, some of the ways that we need to, uh, you, you need to help transform or grow someone uh, in order to become a better version of themselves. And a lot of it is, again, how they carry themselves mm-hmm. in the room, body, facial. Like my job is to be able to um, not only listen effectively and cultivate their own insight, right, mm-hmm. by how I engage with them, also to determine patterns of behavior based on the things that they are saying in the room, but it's also to watch how they either are in, in their bodies, right. Mm-hmm. And are connected to their bodies or are they all in their head and always thinking and not connected to what's in their heart. You can see that a mile away if you're trained and you can see often what other people don't see, which is the minor shift in someone's facial expression. Mm-hmm. I'm hyper aware of like, oh, I don't know what just happened. I'm not clairvoyant, yes. but something just happened inside of them and they don't even know. Yes. And I will go there and I'm like, what just happened? Where did you, you just kind of shifted a little bit. What just happened? And then we start processing that. Um, and so a lot of times it's me helping someone discover their own emotions and thoughts and feelings and guiding them in the direction that I can see they need to go based on what they're saying and what they're not saying. Right, right. What tips would you provide someone that might be going through something very stressful in a work situation and they need to handle that stress in a way that is productive versus negative and hurting themselves? pause so there's a difference between response and react and the so there's always a space between a stimulus and the behavior and the and so when i say pause it's taking that space that happens and slowing things down and i often will start with breathing Mm -hmm. in a moment where you're just like really taking a long internal deep breath and yoga would be pranayama breath where you're just you're literally slowing the heart rate down from a physiological standpoint because when someone's starting to experience that in a workplace, that stress, their heart often is starting to race. And that's usually sending them into a fight or flight or fawn uh, role. So if we can contain our body and start moderating our body in a way that, A, we're connected to it and slowing it down, then we can shift how we respond rather than just an automatic reaction. I want you to have that automatic reaction if you're about to get into a car crash, right? right. I don't want you to think about what you're going to do. I just want you to know, swerve or slam on the brakes. Let your body just take over. But in a business setting or, uh, you know, in an in a interpersonal conflict with your partner, I want you to pause and sit with what your emotion is first and think about what is the best way for me to handle this so that I have greater impact or influence and help that person get their needs met so that I can get my needs met. That's great. And also, in regards to being professional, if someone wants to rise in the ranks just like you did and navigate to that next new pivot or next new chapter, uh, what Mm -hmm. what tips would you provide for them? So rising up in the the organization that they're in, you mean, 
mentorship is huge. Mm-hmm. It's just so important. And aligning yourself with people in the organization that have, you know, positional as well as well as in, informal authority is really important mm-hmm. in an organization because, you know, it's at the end of the day, so much of it is about our associations, our networks, and who we know. Um, and hopefully people that you admire and respect then that how they show up at work and can navigate those difficult situations. I think that's the number one way to rise within an organization is your networks and, and yes. you know, connecting with people and learning from people who you admire and how, who they are and how they got where they are. Um, pivoting is a different is, is something that I work with a lot of people on because, you know, once, you know, whether it's a, they've been a professional player, it's figuring out what that next purpose is. And sometimes that means just taking a class, mm-hmm. not, a, not even throwing yourself back in school, but taking a class that yes. says, am I interested in this? Do I want to really do this for a living? And just sitting in that experience, because remember learning what we don't want is just as important as what we learning, what we do want. Absolutely. So, whether it's taking a class or it's, you know, um, you know, talking through the different options. Some people may want to, you know, I like woodworking and they work in technology right now, right? It's like, okay, well, do you want to do woodworking and how would you make a living out of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we literally process the different steps of like, how would I go about doing this? But so much of what I do when I work with someone who wants to pivot is helping them figure out what is that next purpose? Yes. How can they translate the skills they have now and build upon that to grow into an area that would make them feel fulfilled and it has and is meaningful? Awesome. And Jennifer, you also have a podcast, Everyday Breakthroughs. Uh, talk about what you do on that show and how people can check it out. Oh, thank you. So I just did a pilot episode just to test it out. So um, really the Everyday Breakthroughs podcast really was just for me to start exploring that world and what people would want to hear. So I've just put it on pause for, for the moment um, as I continue to, I'm, I'm finishing my doctorate right now in, in change leadership and change management at USC. So I've kind of put it on pause for the moment and I'll come back to it when I have more time. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, I'm getting a doctorate. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Like, how do you balance all your time out? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, You know, like I said, I'm a go-getter. So um, I I don't have children. I think it's probably my answer. I don't Uh have children, so I'm able to be a little more selfish with my time. Well, awesome. And also, you're a family therapist, a marriage and family therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. So if anybody out there is looking for help. Couples therapy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's why, you know, I love doing couples therapy because this is where I really help people to understand what plays out in the boardroom also plays out in the bedroom. And, you know, if you're feeling one type of way, it's going to show up in the different domains. So I love crossing the domains of professional and personal life. Well, I have truly grown from this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been delightful. And how can people get a hold of you, find out more about what you do? JenniferMusselman.com is the best way to see where I'm at and what I'm doing. And you can shoot me an email. And if I can support you in any way, I'm happy to do that. I love it. Thank you so much. Jennifer Musselman, again, licensed marriage and family therapist and executive coach. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you. You have a great day. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN.
You've been listening to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laferne Cusack on ESPN LA 710.